Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Today's Extrology podcast guest is Turin Tech AI CEO and co-founder, Dr. Leslie Canthon. Dr. Canthon is an expert in graph theory and previously worked for Credit Suisse, Bank of America and Commerce Bank. Turin Tech uses AI to create and optimize AI automatically, empowering enterprise to transform business with smart and efficient AI solutions. The UCL spinout has been selected for Tech Nation's Applied AI 3.0 cohort and has been previously awarded research grants and cloud resources from Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Leslie, welcome to the Extrology podcast. Uh, as always, it's a privilege and uh, really appreciate your time to have you on as our, our guest this morning. Uh, before we go into, I guess, uh, your career and uh, more recent experiences around Turing Tech in particular, I'm keen, as always, to start with with the early days. So uh, tell me, where did you grow up and therefore what was uh, what was childhood like for you? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was uh, born in uh, London and um, I uh, grew up in Kent, which was uh, quite nice or green and scenic. The Garden of England. Yes, that's what they call it, the Garden of England. And my childhood was really um, very uh, fun, loving, very interesting. And and big big family, brothers, sisters, you know, number of siblings, or you? you... Yeah, so uh, I had a um, I had a brother uh, before we went to the same university. We studied. Unfortunately, passed away when he was quite young. But apart from that, just myself. No, that's fine. That's Mm -hmm. good. That motivates me as well. And and so, who are your heroes as a child? Who did you look up to? <laughs> That's a good one. Well, I mean, I I guess uh, it might sound somewhat strange, but my heroes were the kind of uh, heroes that I read in the comics. So I looked up to maybe some of the Marvel heroes, like uh, you know the X Men, Charles Xavier. But apart from that, I guess as a child growing up. Some of the heroes that I liked seeing outside of the comic area was probably people like uh, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. Those are the kind of guys that I started hearing about uh, when I was a young kid and looked up to a bit. It may seem an obvious when clearly such well-known figures um, that we could draw our own conclusions, but what was it particularly about those those two that, that you admired? Yeah, I think um, I liked their peaceful approach to solving problems and also their perseverance as well, working really hard against all odds to achieve what they wanted to set out to achieve. And and the comic books, when did they start to appear on the shelf? <laughs> I think I was quite a, uh, I don't know, when I was maybe six or seven, I think I got my first comic book in infant school and then of course there was the television so you'd see some of these cartoons as well so um x-men marvel 
television series, Marvel comics that matched up with what you were seeing on television. So you got to feel, have a feel for some of those heroes, you know. And when did you therefore, or when do you recall first starting to develop an interest in mathematics? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a picture of me when I was like maybe three or four and I had a calculator in my hand and it's like one of those big chunky ones. And uh, I guess uh, I was always fiddling around with instruments that had something to do with math. So like, I think you had an abacus and, you know, puzzles and a very small chessboard. So um, I started to get interest in numbers. And then from numbers, I started moving more into um, finding out that uh, I saw much of the world in, in a quantitative way as a child. So I began to develop much more interest in, 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 the, in the world of maths as a child. Was there a, a moment that you recall as to first sparking that interest or an incident or a, a, an experience that you think, actually, this is where I've, I, as I look back, that's where mathematics really started to shape my influence of, and perspective of the world? Yeah, I mean, I think probably my first real like game of chess, the thinking from it, it made me feel that is a, is a moment that I think about and reflect that that's where maths really started taking off for me because I wanted to understand some of the logic behind the moves when you're playing your opponent, not just playing from rules, but actually know the, the logic. And what age were you when you first started playing chess? Probably about five. Wow. And, and who taught you to play? Was there a, a particular figure that, that influenced you in that regard? No, I think um, it was uh, self-taught. And then, you know, as you grow up, you start reading books on chess. You start learning about chess moves and opening moves. You're eight, nine, ten, all the way, you know, into school. And do you still play now? <laughs> occasionally <laughs> when time permits <laughs> yeah when when time permits <laughs> what about the influence of technology in your childhood was there a point at which you recall technology started to to feature that you started to take an interest in in what technology could do and what might that have looked like yeah i definitely i think that played a, a big part in it now we take a lot of technology for granted i see you know kids playing with tablets and phones and you know wireless tech and wearables there's a lot of things now but in my childhood there wasn't a lot of those things at all they did not exist at that time i remember being in school and the school having their first computer in a classroom that all the other classrooms would share so um the students would get time on a computer. And that's where my first interest in technology came because this was a computer that was not even connected to the internet at the time. So this was like, I remember there was a game on it called Logo. And it's like, it was the only game that you had on there. And it would be a line, I think you'd have to maneuver this line around the maze or something along those lines. And that's when the interest of making more games or learning about coding came from there. 
Do you remember, out of interest, what the what the computer was, what model it was? I remember, I know from my own experience, but that we had a we had a school computer room with I think six BBC. I think they were BBC A or BBC B computers. I mean, I, I, I went to school a very long time ago, but to your point, you know, there were six, for a school of a thousand kids, there were six computers. You know, it's, it's incomprehensible to a to a generation today. Yeah, no, I think it was a BBC. And I, I think regardless of the fact that you might have gone to school a, lot, a long time ago, I think the UK certainly is not like the US. So um, when there's new technology and computer products that come out, they hadn't really entered the mass market here in the UK. Like there were only very specialized institutions that had such machines. And even then they weren't going to be the latest or top of the range or they weren't being replaced. So I think that BBC we had had come from somewhere else, but it might have been a good seven or eight years old for, for instance, when it came, it wasn't, it might not have been, the latest version of a computer, which might have been at that time, may have been a Nimbus or an Acorn PC or something along those lines. What was it about that early experience with that computer that sparked your interest? Yeah, I think the ability to create your ideas to code, to see how programs work, programs in general, these nice little pieces of software and doing repetitive tasks quickly. I remember one of those other things that you could see is like growing up with computers and the Windows 3.11 moment when I remember how long it took to load the screen up and then you'd have the, the GUI and you'd be using a mouse. So yeah, like that's what I remember. At what point did you start to write some of your own code? Do you remember some of those early programs that you'd have gotten involved in? Yeah, I remember coding in BASIC, QBASIC, because Microsoft had DOS um, operating system at the time. So learning to make uh, code at the time, also from other programs. I remember they had this game, which was like, I think it was a replica of Donkey Kong, but it froze a banana. So I opened up the, the code because the source file is given, you compile and then you play. And then learning how that code is written to create the same type of character or changing a lot of the character's features. It was quite good. Yeah. So was there a moment at which you started to think that there was a career choice to be made around technology? I know that you um, were going to explore that. Your studies were focused around mathematics and computer sciences. And then from a career perspective, broadly speaking, financial services was a feature in, in some of your early career, as I understand it. But was there a point at which you thought technology as a career, and I appreciate that's a, a broad sweeping area, but was there a point at which you thought technology is a career choice that I could really get interested in? Yeah, I think uh, as soon as I was in university and I was uh, reading mathematics at Warwick, I started to see, you know, the applications of more technology in industry. I was fortunate because unlike a lot of other students during their school or primary school days, I was engaged in a lot more in the computing and computer space, computer clubs, um, computer gaming club. And a large part of my earlier life involved uh, uh, this mixture of computers and uh, science and mathematics. And now, you know, at degree, I was well equipped for adapting that experience 
so that I could uh, go into a career that would involve technology to a high degree. Were there other subjects that you were particularly interested in at school? Did it was sort of a breadth of a breadth to the portfolio? Were you or were you very much in that kind of numbers was your thing, and that's the that was always going to be the direction of travel? Yeah, I think uh, numbers were my thing. I was good at math. I was good at physics. I was good at uh, computing. I was good at technology, IT. And on the side, outside of that, I, I could play the guitar up to grade eight. Um, I was a little bit sporty. I liked to do martial arts, Muay Thai. So, you know, like I would say that majority of it was very quantitatively based, but I also had, you know, uh, extracurricular activities mm. in sport, etc. And so at what point did you decide or did you make that you know, the career choice to pursue commerce? What was the sort of trigger that led you down a route that found you in, as I say, broadly the financial services industry? I would say I like numbers a lot. And um, there was a lot of different uh, jobs available in the marketplace from marketing to sales to business development to maths, finance, teaching. And... Um, I did like teaching and I still do. Yeah. <laughs> and we kind of do that in our company as well. Uh, that's a, 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 something that we can discuss probably later, but we have a lot of kids and younger interns that come and work for us. And some of them we take from school, but um, yeah, like um, broadly speaking, I fell into um, the finance area simply because I really enjoyed working with maths and computing technology and I saw that the financial services was a place where all of that came together and you could get the latest technology. The second choice for me in that area would just be to work for a pure technology company but then at that stage the, there wasn't a Facebook, there wasn't a Google, the technology companies you would really think about working for were IBM or Microsoft but the choices within the financial services industry were very broad. Hence the route I chose. And, and what do you think you learned from that early career experience? Yeah, I think I learned um, people interaction, interacting with people, how to um, work on your tasks diligently, how to apply your knowledge in mathematics to solving problems and uh, implementing code to solve those very problems as well. And had you always, if you like, for want of a better expression, that itch that you wanted to scratch around your own business? Was there always something lurking in the background to which you'd felt that at some point that's the plan? <laughs> no, it was spontaneous, I guess. Was it? Yeah. I, I, never, I never thought of having a business earlier on. I always saw myself working within a team and having a team of people around you. I was always used to that environment. But yes, of course, coming from you know, the financial services environment, you get used to working in teams and then you understand about how to analyze particular use cases. So it would be a natural extension for me to go into the business world and launch our own business. But there was no initial plans to do that. And that spontaneous decision to which you refer, was there that sort of eureka moment where, or what was it? What was the inspiration behind Turin Tech AI? Yeah, sure. So um, the inspiration is that, look, you know, 
there's four friends, right? Best friends, they all did their PhDs and uh, postdoc research. Two of them went on to become associate and assistant professors, but very close. And all of them worked within the financial sector as well. So knew each other within the financial industry, worked for big well-known banks. And each one of us had a distinct area of knowledge in machine learning, which is AI, and high-performance computing, right? So we had this plan to solve a very interesting problem and work together to solve that. We decided earlier on that this could have huge value. And remember, we're around an environment now where, like, London is... London has its own Silicon Valley, right? If you if you think of it that way, that there's a lot of VCs, there's a lot of startups now emerging, and we wanted to be one of them. So we had this idea of building out our company from an idea that we had. Do you remember? And and how did it come about? Was there a sort of discussion over a cup of coffee, four of you around a table, and all of a sudden that actually, to your point, the relationship was in play, but and the talent was clearly there and capability, but was there a clear vision as to what it was that you were looking to achieve from the get-go or did you? how did that start to form? Yeah, no, there was a very clear vision when we started to do this. So we all worked together on code optimization. We found that we were doing something that highly advanced and developed some new artificial intelligence slash machine learning techniques that weren't really out there in the public domain. We applied this to the code optimization and we decided to publish a very watered down version of this in terms of a paper. It got into a top tier conference. It won a Google award, um, a Microsoft award and so forth. So that became the form of, right, we've got the paper out there. We had already started to set the company up to address the case of, you know, we're going to solve code optimization for the masses using artificial intelligence. What is the actual first vertical application of doing this? We looked at machine learning models. So, you know, we had a very clear roadmap and plan. And me and the guys, you know, we invested our savings into it. So we put our own money into the company, over half a million between the four of us. And we then said, yeah, let's go and do this. And was there a moment at which you thought, to your point around the Microsoft Award, the Google Award, was that the recognition that gave you the confidence that you knew you were onto something, but did the wider world know? Was there that moment where you thought, actually, we are onto something and this this has got scale, this has got, we've got leverage here, we can make this work? Yeah, I think um, when we started it, we definitely felt that way. AI hadn't taken off. No, this is what I'm thinking, because it's when would this have been? What sort of timescales are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So after we all finished our research, etc. So I think around uh, 2018 slash 2019, right? So it's not that long ago, okay? So it's like, you, you can match this. So if you look at, um, for example, the share price of companies like NVIDIA and AMD that produce GPUs, for artificial intelligence purposes specifically as well as gaming you can see the stock price correlates right with those years if you go back to you know um 2015 16 17 you know um the price is a lot lower down compared to what it is now you see this exponential rise 
because of the consumption of artificial intelligence by the needs of many different users. So um, yeah, like um, we started around at that time, we, we realized that there was an opportunity, but maybe at that particular time, AI was an area that was very interesting and it was starting to take off, but it hadn't become a very hot topic as it is right now. And what was it therefore that accepting that your own confidence is evidenced by the investment that you'd made collectively as a group, you were clearly backing yourselves, but was there a point at which you thought, okay, the world is backing us too? You know, our hypothesis and therefore our product, you know, it's all starting to play out as a viable business opportunity. Yeah, definitely. So basically, one of the most important parts for us of the validation came when we had the research paper that I mentioned to you, which was public. It got into a top tier conference, the one that won awards. Very randomly, it was picked up by the former CTO of VMware, and he has a blog. So his name is Adrian Collier, and he has a a personal blog, which is looked at by a lot of technology professionals and a lot of VCs, etc. In that blog, he actually reviews our research paper, and he details in the conclusion some of the commercial viabilities of it. So it's basically you know, it was very exciting for us because now we're starting to see that there was, you know, interest in that. And um, Adrian and, and and people much like him because he was one of those that reviewed it. There was also Hacker News. There was somebody from Cloudera who cited us at a big data conference in London. So we were starting to get this traction and we hadn't really, you know, exposed the paper out there, it was just picked up for, you know, from what we thought was very quite random. But now we started to see that there was a lot of interest in, in what we were doing. So that was a lot of validation for us in the early stage to show, look, we put our money into this and already, you know, we're seeing that people are actually taking this quite seriously. And then when we came for VC investment at the first stage, we were surprised because we had numerous term sheets we had to choose an investor that we, we were fortunate to have the choice to choose an investor so we could look at the different offers and see which offer worked really well for us and that's how we started to get on our journey and do you recall as to some of the challenges that you faced in those early days how perhaps therefore you would have overcome them so I think one of the challenges that we faced was hires. You know, you, you have an early, you have an idea and you need people to help work with you on that. But of course, it's difficult because, you know, people can work for big corporations and they can earn significant amounts of money. And then how do you convince those people to come and join you and give up that fast pace of life that they may have? in the corporate sector to come and work with you. So that was one of the challenges. And, you know, we overcame that naturally because um, the culture of the team, the culture of our company, this flexibility of being able to share talk ideas, this informalness and working with some very smart, talented people. So, you know, that's how we overcame that challenge. And there was also the challenge as well of basically convincing people about 
optimization and AI. And some of those challenges were addressed not just by ourselves, but by the wider market, as in there were a number of emerging deep tech startups and there was a number of things happening in the space. For example, Google had acquired DeepMind, which also spun out of UCL, much like we had done. And um, now becoming an artificial intelligence company as well seemed to be, look like more of the norm. So I think um, we overcame them with the help of others. Looking back at that time, what do you think you learned from the experience? I think that um, we learned from the experience to persevere with our ideas, with our dreams, you know, to learn from others and understand the challenges. And even if you cannot crack the challenge now, to open doors because there's always that hope that you will be able to later crack that challenge, as was the case with us. And is there anything, hindsight, a wonderful thing, but is perhaps there anything that you would have done differently? Uh, yeah, I think um, it's difficult to say, right? Because you, you, you know, but I think now I know like running a business is for, for us and me and the co-founders. I wish we started this a lot earlier. I, I probably hear that a lot, you know. I think that we wish we started this earlier. We know what we wanted to do. I think that it's all part of a journey, right? You, you study, you do your degree, you do your master's, you work, you continue to do another master's, you do your PhD and you meet great people and that's how you get that idea. So, you know, it, it's difficult to say you want to start the idea a lot earlier because you do, but then you wouldn't have met the great people to start that idea a lot earlier, right? So it's a tough one. <laughs> It's, it's an interesting one, I think, as well, is that to your point around how you continue to nurture those great ideas. You know, I think that when you've had, you know, that collaboration that you've had with like-minded, talented people, that sharing, that conversation, that sharing of ideas to formulate a vision and a plan that you've then subsequently gone on to execute, there's huge value in that. How do you nurture, how do you continue to nurture that when the demands of the day job are such that actually you're incredibly busy, but that you know clearly the power of, of those ideas and, and, and what it can do? How do you continue to nurture that kind of culture and from the seed, if you like, from which Turin Tech has, has blossomed and bloomed? Do you build that kind of learning and collaboration into your culture? So you, that sharing of ideas and, and, yeah, and and where do you go for your ideas, given that, you, as I say, the demands of the day job are so busy that actually you, there's a lot of doing to be done? How do you continue to evolve that kind of that thinking and that sharing of ideas? I talk to a lot of founders from other startups, early stage, all the way to later stage. Some of them are IPO'd as well. One or two of them are listed on London's uh, stock exchange itself. And um, I get a lot of great insights, experience from them, and also some ideas. I also speak, we collaborate very strongly with research and universities, UCL, Warwick, King's College, Imperial, Oxford. So there's a number of different areas that, you know, we can just tap into. I get a lot of ideas from talking to people within the team and vice versa. So we, we all share ideas. We all gain ideas from each other. They bounce off each other. In our office, all the walls are painted 
that's that's coated in a special paint that allows you to basically uh, draw on it. I, I think you, you know you can see from here, right? But yeah. <laughs> you know, like you 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 know, there's always ideas being written and thought about. So th- this is an environment where people can share and work together. And my sense is that must be, it may seem an obvious thing to say, but that must be critical to your ongoing success, if only because the dynamics of the market in which you find yourself are so fast-paced, so constantly evolving, ever-shifting, that in order that you continue to not only fulfil your objectives, but also stay ahead of the game, if you like, that, that knowledge transfer must be so essential to what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. What, what about in terms of, what do you enjoy about the Turin Tech, the experience that you've had to date? What have you enjoyed about it? Yeah, I enjoy the technology that we're working on, that we're improving all the time, that at this present time, we're the only company that can do code optimization. And there's a lot of companies that are going to be entering that space soon. Obviously, there's a lot of companies in the artificial intelligence space doing model building, model generation. So we are also part of that. But having a very unique technology or unique IP, that's that's something that's I enjoy having. And also working with the team. Like um, we've got great minds and uh, a lot of these guys are focused on the journey with us. They want to be part of this journey. They want to feel very relevant. And everybody has ownership on all these different things. So, you know, we, we have a very horizontal level within the team. So what would you suggest you would, find to be the three most important things you've learned as a result of the business that you have grown today? I think understanding is one of those things, understanding the requirements from industry, from companies, use cases, understanding what your team can and cannot do, and not trying to do everything, and just focusing on what you need to do. The second part is also loyalty because that's something that's very important. We meet a lot of companies and startups and, you know, turnover rate, staff turnover rate is quite high and maybe that's quite normal. So people are used to this idea of um, joining a startup for a few months or, you know, maybe I'll leave and join another startup or join another company. And so loyalty is quite a big thing here, the, the, the team. Is, is very close to us and also the customers as well are quite close to us as well. So establishing that. And the third thing above all is, you know, to have fun, right? So we're serious about the business, but at the same time, we are not going to let it break our, our lifestyle and our friendship and the things that we do. So especially amongst the founders, for example, we're very close and we imagine and know that this business is going to work out for us but if it doesn't it doesn't change the relationship between us all and that includes also the team members as well right Mm -hmm. you know like i see myself all of us working and succeeding in this space but we succeed together as a team so it's important that we also enjoy ourselves and we have fun and we do things so you know we do a lot of activities together as a team we go out for dinners together we went go-karting as a team as well in the rain. <laughs> uh, the rain was unexpected. So it's important to do these things. How has COVID-19 
impacted that. The thing that strikes me about the timelines that you've been on with Insurantech AI, 2018, 19, to your point around then, so you've, you're almost, you're getting started and then bang, we're in the midst of a, you know, a global pandemic, people all of a sudden working from home. You've mentioned that, for example, even the office environment, I can see it on the wall behind you, but to your point, the walls are painting, you, that creativity and sharing of ideas, going back to what we said earlier and, and creating a culture around you know, that openness to ideas and, and the creative spark that I'd imagine afforded those that you're working with and alongside that, you know, you're, you're constantly engaging conversation, you're collaborating on in a very visual way, how you've managed that through then going to a cycle of everybody working from home, I think is a, is a challenge for a number of business owners as to how you continue to evolve and develop culture when all of a sudden you've gone from having everybody in a shared space to having everybody working from home. How has that affected you and how have you, how have you overcome some of those challenges? Sure, I, I, can, I can explain that uh, quite nicely. And this is why it comes back to the earlier questions of what you asked, what was important for us as a, a, a business that we've learned as a result of the business and that we've grown today. And I think you'll probably see the connection in that. So look, COVID-19 was terrible. It affected a lot of things. And um, when the government started giving the advisory that companies or people should be working from home, a lot of people wanted to work from home and started to get used to that. We as a company followed that guideline and equally we told everybody in the team to start working from home. But actually, as the lockdowns became a little bit eased off, what we started to see is a number of people contacted us and bearing in mind, you know, we're at a point in time where we're thinking, you know, if nobody's coming to the office, do we need an office, right? You know, maybe we can just all work remotely. But what actually happened is a couple of people contacted the founders directly and asked if they could come to the office. Now, here we go. So if we say, yeah, of course you can, then what does that say if the founders are working from home and the team members are in the office? So, of course, as founders, we started to come to the workplace. And then eventually, everybody started coming to the workplace. and. In our building, for many months, every office was empty, okay? And when I walked outside on the streets, a lot of other offices were also empty. But we actually increased our office footprint. We had a larger office in that time. We have a lot more people in that time. And everybody was pretty much coming and working with us and having all of this stand-ups and following this agile methodology and writing their ideas on the wall, solving problems together, because remote is good, but at the same time, the creativity happens a lot in person. And, you know, that's something that remote, but it's not something that is easily done through remote. But bearing in mind, as we mentioned in our firm, we are quite flexible, right? So you know, by far, uh, a majority of the people want to come and work together and, you know, be there shoulder to shoulder. So I'd say it didn't affect us negatively in terms of the workplace for us as a team. How does that impact with respect to your um, your plans to, you know, clearly an obvious thing to say, but talent is an integral part of 
what you're achieving as an organisation, attracting and retaining and developing very talented people who arguably, I would imagine, are worldwide. You know, you could conceivably go for the technical capability you need to deliver your vision to, to all four corners of the planet. How then you continue to build and evolve culture when perhaps potentially over time you, you'll have people in different locations. What are your thoughts in that regard? Is that something that, because there is that ecosystem to which you refer in London, isn't there, around the, the startup community in which you're involved and technology in particular? I mean, look, you can see here, right? These are people of different nationalities. They're already yep. having fun here, probably waiting to see if I will go with them, right? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I'm waving and I'm saying I cannot go. Right? <laughs> but, you know, like, um, um, not yet anyway. But what we've tried to do is we've tried to bring everyone here to the UK. So wherever that talent is, we brought them here to the UK, to London. But of course, as we scale, as you mentioned, we will have teams in other countries. We've already got guys that used to study here before in London and they returned to Greece and they asked if we could do some work if they could work with us and we said sure but what we've done is we've not had somebody solo there we've established teams there so you know there's a cluster of if you want to think of it in the future like we would have maybe another office as well in other european countries and in the us and you know we will integrate very well we will maintain that culture across because as long as you have video link and as long as you have many different people working together in that same location, then you can definitely help to maintain and grow that culture. I think it's very exciting to debate as to what the future of work looks like post the last couple of years and how the office that for so many years has been an integral part of how we've gone about our jobs, how that evolves, how the space is used, how organisations build culture with, you know, across multiple locations. I think it's a really interesting way. I mean, I guess it begs the question as to what really excites you about the future world of work just that um there's this hybrid flexibility that you can work remotely sometimes you can work together as a team that you can work to build stuff in an, an environment and ideas can spin off new ideas and innovation um, some of the things that um, we have implemented within the product and the platform have come from the collaboration of people working together so that innovation to which you refer what developments broader developments in technology if you look across the sphere what developments in technology are you really excited by i guess we're excited the developments in artificial intelligence at the moment and quantum computing these two areas seem to be taking off in terms of specific development the area of optimization the area of automation of generating models so very cutting edge stuff but in, in the frontiers of artificial intelligence, because I really feel that AI is going to be very much an important part of our lives. Do you get a sense that in much the same way as perhaps previous generations would have studied the industrial revolution, future revelations might study this period in time as a, as a, as a technological revolution? We really, it really does feel like we're only at the beginning, at the very start, even though if I look at my own working life, developments in technology have been, have been rapid but actually, I, just that sense that we're only really just at the start now in terms of the broader landscape is an exciting time to be around. Yeah. So who has been the greatest influence on your career and why? A, a number of people ranging, you know, from my mother to 
professors who supported us and also some key friends as well so a, a group of people have been had the, had the greatest impact i say our professors because during the time when we were studying and doing our research there was a couple of professors and academics who were strongly involved in industry and were very supportive and pushing across you know that you you, you don't need to have a career just in academia only that you can use your academic background to apply your idea your your research into industry so this is this is one of those uh, facts the second thing as well is that people like my mom had um, worked very hard all their lives and um, she had been in finance for a long time so also understanding you know the kind of um, support getting the support from your family and friends and that's why i mentioned from my mom she was very um supportive to me and encouraging always motivating me not to take the easy options always take the hard options and see how you can and and learn and uh, same same thing as well from friends as well and and you mentioned those professors and to your earlier point around teaching you enjoyed teaching it's an integral part of the culture with insurance echo what is it about teaching that you enjoy giving back, giving guidance, passing on the knowledge. And there's no point having the knowledge if all you do is just sit on it. I think that it's really good to pass that knowledge and aim to make people smarter than you. And uh, that I get enjoyment from doing that. We have a lot of kids that come from really good schools and come to learn and train with us. And, you know, we have helped them, motivated them so that they would become these budding AI scientists in the, in the years to come. So I like doing all that. It must be very rewarding. Oh yeah, definitely. Because uh, some of them may end up joining your company, right? So, uh, you know, Smart when strategy. you take someone young and then exactly start them when they're 13 or 14. <laughs> so who do you admire? You mentioned, you mentioned Gandhi and, uh, and Nelson Mandela already in yeah. our conversation, but it, yeah. Who do you, who is it that you admire? Who do you admire? Well, I guess, you know, like um, that was in, as in terms of, you know, like heroes that you mentioned, but um, a person who I might admire today, I think uh, someone like Jeff Bezos, I admire how he has built uh, a great company. And at one point they had a lot of financial difficulties, but, you know, he, he did a lot of things to keep it afloat and make it happen. And, He's become very successful from it. So, you know, I would say he's one of those that I kind of admire. Mm-hmm. So what does success mean to you? Yeah, so success means to me getting to the point where you see your product being used by every company, having a large organization that is very responsive and you feel that you are key to having built that all up from scratch right down to the end and also taking the people that matter most to you, people that you worked with, with you along for that journey so that they are successful with you. And, and what is it that, that drives you? I don't want any day to go to waste. I'm not a nine to five guy. I work very late hours. And what drives me is knowing that um, there are others who are working just as hard or as harder than us, but 
haven't achieved as much as we've achieved. So I don't want it to go to waste. And so I want to focus my energy to achieve a common success for myself and all the team members that we have. So when working, to your point, you're working long hours, do you unwind? How do you unwind? If you're not um, solving complex problems, how do you relax? Gym, running, exercise. We have a, you know, we've, we've done it in such a way that the office has a very good uh, premium gym right down at the basement level. We've got an elevator that takes us straight there. So a lot of those perks that we've incorporated makes it very easy. I can go for yoga sessions. I, I like to run about 10 kilometers every day. And I also like to do yoga and body resistance exercises as well. Um, so no weights, but um, this is how I see myself like unwinding in terms of health. And then, of course, I also like to read. I read a lot of books, mainly in the finance and technology area, but also around current affairs, very interested in um, what's happening around us and history. So um, this, this is what I use to basically, you know, unwind and relax. And looking back, what advice would you give 21-year-old you? Yeah, I would say uh, to have a, a work-life harmony, right? So to, to, to basically have in mind what you want to do and create that harmony so that you're doing all of the things that you want to do and enjoying your time at the same time. And therefore, what advice might you give anyone who's out there thinking, might be listening to this, thinking of starting a business today, what advice would you give them? So majority of startups, I'm not sure what the percentage is, so you cannot probably quote me on it, but um, I do know it's a majority of startups fail. Hmm. I think it's four out of five never make it past their third year, something like that. Right. But I think it's the failures rate is quite high just for the first year in itself. So I think that anyone who's thinking of starting a a business, uh, my advice would be to make sure that you know what you exactly want to do and have the right set of people around you to achieve that. Because in this day and age, building a business alone is very hard. But sharing that responsibility and having that support is is what's going to really help you. So develop that, establish that relationship. So what does the future look like, first and foremost, for Turing Tech AI, before we talk about you personally, but what does the future look like for the business? Uh, yeah, it looks very good um, for the business that we have a lot of opportunities right now. We engage with a number of companies. We have customers. We found niches working with database companies. Everybody's approaching us for machine learning optimization from individual data scientists to technology companies as well. So the future looks really good and there will be some more uh, news probably in the coming months that I can't go through right now, but um, it looks really good for us. And for you personally, what are your thoughts on the future? What does it look like for you? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I'm growing into the role as the company's getting bigger and bigger, right? You know, so I'm adapting and learning to delegate responsibilities so um, I can work on different things. So I think it, it, it looks really good for myself as well. Fantastic. And, and for those that are listening that are keen to find out more, 
where can they go to find out more about TurinTech? They can go to the website or our LinkedIn. It's www.turintech.ai. And, um, you know, you can find a lot of things. And also um, research articles. So we still publish in academia. So we're doing a number of different papers that are under review. Some is already available. So you can find that on Google Scholar. So there's a, there's a lot of medium about us at the moment out there. But otherwise, people can always come and visit us at our office and have a coffee with any one of the founders. You know, we're very open to that or the team. Fantastic. Where would they find? Where are the offices? Leslie? Yeah, we're based. <laughs> we're based in uh, uh, Moorgate, right in the centre, right next to the train station, and we're quite high up. So uh, nice views and uh, nice environment, and very very safe around us. Fantastic. Dr. Leslie Cathern, it's been great to speak with you this morning. Um, I've really appreciated your time. It's a fabulous story. And I think Turintech AI is a a wonderful example of of the the wealth of technological innovation and and talent that uh, exists within the startup and beyond scene in the UK. And I think we have a fabulous ecosystem of opportunity and talent that is, is really exciting and uh, I think paints makes for a very bright future. So uh, I wish you and your colleagues continued success in your endeavours uh, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and, uh, and sharing your story with us and all the very best for the future. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leslie. All the best. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.